Woo! Man. I know Matt did this, but let's just do it again. He is risen. For those of you who are not acquainted with this age-old church tradition, the person up here on Resurrection Sunday, as it is today, would get up front and would make that declaration that he is risen. And just as you heard, the response is he is risen indeed. What an amazing thing to stand in the house of the living God knowing that our king is risen from the dead. Listen, I don't know how you typically respond when your favorite team is down 26 points in the fourth quarter and comes back or whatever. I don't know how your, you know, typical response goes when your favorite team is down 1-3 in the World Series. I don't know how you respond when that team all the way from behind comes back and wins. All I'm telling you, That sin had Jesus down like death to zero. And on the third day, (laughs) I don't know who can just call things off with death. But Jesus did. Apparently, Jesus decided to break up with death and break out of the grave on that third day. That is our hope, church, that our Savior did not stay in the grave. He is risen. As the great theologian of our time, Taylor Swift, put it, you know, we are never, ever getting back together. (laughs) Broken up for good. Jesus is like, it's not you, it's me. (laughs) I really just want to be able to free other people, if you know what I'm saying. Amazing. Jesus rose from the dead. And listen, that is the single most significant event in all of human history. Because if Jesus doesn't rise on Sunday, then Friday was a bust. Forgiveness is not a possibility. Freedom is not an option. Fullness is not a reality. But he is risen. Amen. Listen, I don't know. Listen, you have 51 Sundays throughout the course of the year in which you can be cute and conservative and keep it together. But on this day, can we at least make a little bit of noise? He is risen indeed. Oh, man. All right, maybe 49 Sundays because we're going to lose our minds in a couple of weeks here for our baptism service. Um, as well. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, by the way, and you have never taken the step of obedience to stand with the one who stood for you, the one who stood in your place. This is not an option. This is a command Jesus makes. And so if you've never been baptized, the 30th is your day. So make sure you sign up on the back of your connection card, a great way to do that. And would love to include you, stand with you, celebrate on that day. Um, my name is Kondo, for those of you I do not know, and um, I, I just kind of want to take a few moments to, you know, let's just get to know each other. So I thought I'd share a little bit about me so you can get to know me a little bit better. And, um, oh man, where to start? Um, okay, how about we start here? Um, so when I was 15, this is a true story, uh, when I was 15 years old, uh, I was hanging out with some friends that I really shouldn't have been hanging out with, and uh, we were dancing away at some club that we really shouldn't have been dancing at on account of the fact that I was 15 years old. But anyway, while I was in this club dancing the night away, some talent agent saw me. And I'm just saying, I'm an awesome dancer. I just think you should know that. Um, Okay, was, but whatever. Um, 
Tenses are irrelevant for the purpose of this story. Um, but this, this talent agent sees me dancing and he approaches me and uh, somehow convinces me that I need to audition to be on a commercial that's going to be shown all over the country. At that point, I was living in Sydney, Australia. For some reason or another, I thought, yeah, let me do that. Let me go and audition for this thing. And uh, so I did. And I'm not saying that I was better than everybody else. But I am thinking it, because I smoked these guys um, at the audition. And needless to say, I ended up getting that particular part on, um, on that commercial. And I just really just thought, like, man, what, what should I let you know about me um, other than some awesome facts? That's one of them. So um, <laughs> needless to say, I was famous. People knew me. Um, I couldn't go anywhere and stuff without people being like, oh, aren't you the guy in that co-commercial? Can I take a picture with you? Can I marry you? You know, just stuff like that, just regular everyday stuff uh, started to happen to me. Um, anyway, after getting on this commercial, I got a paycheck. Uh, I probably made for those four seconds on television as much as my dad made in that particular year. So I was rich and famous now, which <laughs> imagine trying to be a parent of a 15-year-old who thinks is rich and famous. Um, you can't tell me anything. I mean, have you been on TV? No, so thank you very much. You can't tell me what to do. So that was a rough season for my parents. Um, um, just, just really rough. But anyway, so uh, this talent agent called me back and said, hey, I have another opportunity for you. Um, there is a soap opera that I think you should really um, audition for so you can be an actor in this show. I'm like, A, soap opera, street cred. Um, but B, um, I'm like... That's all the way on the other side of town, and that audition is early, and maybe you haven't heard, but I'm rich. People know me, um, and um, I'm, I'm, I'm famous, and uh, my life is set right now. I don't need to get on a train, go on the other side of town to get on some ridiculous show. So I didn't, because it was too early and too far. So anyway, this show was called Home and Away um, in Australia, but it ended... It, anyway, it ended up being a platform that launched a few people's careers, like, you know, uh, Heath Ledger, you know, who's like the Joker and Batman, but whatever, Chris Hemsworth, you know, just Thor, um, you know, Simon Baker, the mentalist, but, you know, Naomi Watts, King Kong, whatever. Uh, they made it. I didn't want to go because it was super, super early um, in the morning. <laughs> Here's the thing, though. I, I just wanted you to know this because you may have thought, oh, I'm going to go to church and listen to some other regular guy just talk. And I want you to know, you know, uh, I'm famous. People know me and you are lucky to be here. So <laughs> congratulations. Um, man, that is so super awkward. I can't believe I'm still doing it. But anyway, uh, anything to help you understand the word of God a little more clearly. Uh, we are going to actually look at something that is not quite, you know, uh, the traditional Easter passage uh, this, this morning. We're going to look at a story in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. If you have a copy of the Bible, please turn there. We're going to have the verses up here on the screens as well. And I trust that you see here in a second um, that what I just did uh, paints a, a little picture, gives a little glimpse of what Paul does. He, he has an equally awkward, um, humble brag moment in this passage in order to bring about the point he is trying to make. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to start reading um, at verse number 1, verse 1, verse 1. Here's what it says. I must go on boasting, says Paul, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. 
He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. And he heard inexpressible things that no one is permitted to tell. That is so super awkward. Because we all know Paul's talking about himself. Kind of humble bragging, like, you know, speaking in third person. Uh, Here's what Paul is referencing. About 14 years prior to him penning the words to this letter, uh, Paul had what one might refer to as an epic and exclusive experience. Paul got to go to heaven. Now, again, stop me if, if this has ever happened to you. But anyway, Paul got to go to heaven. Like the God of the galaxies wanted to spend some time with his friend Paul, so he sent him a shuttle to teleport him from earth to heaven. Uh, not up to the clouds, that'll be the first heaven. That's not what Paul's talking about. Not up to outer space, that'll be the second heaven. That's not what Paul's talking about. He said, I got caught up to the third heaven. That's like heaven, heaven, where tele, you know, the Hubble telescope cannot see. This is the place where God himself lives. The place where myriad of heavenly hosts are flying around, chanting, holy, holy, holy. Paul says, I was there. Okay, maybe not me, but somebody I know. It was there. And the things I saw, the secrets God shared with me, I'm not even permitted to repeat those to you. Paul is describing an epic and exclusive experience, one unlike any other person in all of history could ever have claims to have. When God wanted to hang out with Abraham, he came down. When God wanted to hang out with Moses, he would show up in a burning bush or he would allow him to see the hind part of his glory as he passed by on a mountain. When Jesus wanted to talk to Peter, reveal himself, post his departure to heaven, he showed up in a vision on a roof. Paul is saying, no, 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 I'm not saying that God came down to hang out with me. I'm saying God took me up to hang out with him. I wasn't dead. I was alive. That's why I don't know. Was my whole body there? Was my soul there? I don't know. But I got to go to heaven. That is a pretty epic and exclusive experience that puts Paul in an elite category. Here's the problem. Uh, The problem with exclusive and epic experiences is they have a sneaky tendency of making us start to feel exclusive and epic. Which is what actually started to happen even to the great man of God, Paul, himself. They have a way of making us start to feel ourselves a little bit. They have a way of making us, you know, feel a little bit better than the person next to us. They have a way of making us start to feel set. Like I'm famous. People know me. They have a way of making us start to feel set apart from the regular people who are around you. I'm sorry, have you ever been to heaven? Have you ever been, I'm sorry, have you ever been in a co-commercial? Have you ever, no, I didn't think so. Okay, so I'm in a league of my own, right? You start to feel a little something about yourself. They have a way of making you feel self-sufficient. Because listen, no matter whether you like me or don't like me, I was in a co-commercial, were you? No, I always have that thing I can fall back on. I always have that thing that I can go back to. That started to happen 
to Paul. The temptation started to emerge in him. Which, by the way, uh, makes me curious. I mean, since we're getting to know each other, um, what's your epic and exclusive experience? Because we all have one. What's your go-to thing? I'm talking about the thing that you would love for the t-shirt of your life to read. You know, the thing that you would love for everybody to kind of know about you, but it's kind of awkward if you bring it up because it just seems like you're being arrogant and strange. What's the thing that you think kind of sets you apart from everybody else and it puts you in an elite category? I mean, you're not saying, but you're just saying. What is it? What's that thing that's your go-to thing? It's the thing you go to when you need a little, a, a, a little boost, a little reminder that, you know, you're okay. You're all right, if not a little bit better than everybody else. When you need a little boost of esteem, what is that thing? What is the thing you wish just marked your life and people would find out about you? Which is why we invented Instagram, by the way. So we could suddenly let each other know these kinds of things about ourselves. But what is that for you? For some of you, it's, it's your, your stuff, your, your money. I mean, he, as the kids say, you make it rain. You can afford the things that the rest of us just put on our wish list on Amazon and never actually get them. And you know it, you know. I mean, even right now, you're sitting next to people who just can't afford the same stuff that you can afford. After some of you, it's something about your career. I mean, you are the executive vice, vice president. Uh, you know what? Don't even worry about it. You wouldn't understand. It's so epic. For some of you, it's something as simple as your beauty. All your life, you've been gawked over and fussed over because you're so adorable and you're so beautiful. And that has become your go-to thing. That's become the thing that you hope everybody notices. That's become the thing that defines you and sets you apart. For some of you, it's your athleticism. For some of you, you're the GPA queen. You have never seen a B-. minus. In fact, you threw up in your mouth just now when you heard me say B-. minus. But you don't like to talk about your grades. But you do hope somebody brings it up. For some of you, it can actually be an area of hardship in your life. It's the thing you want people to know about. I've been through some things. All these weak people with a cushy, easy life. Mm -mm, not me. I've been through some things that nobody else would understand. So many things. Things and things. Ask me these things. What is it for you? For some of you, it's just the fact that you're a grandparent. And you're not saying, but you're just saying that your grandkids are cuter than everybody else's grandkids. I mean, you are Meemaw of the year, Gigi, whatever. <laughs> what is your epic and exclusive experience? As we'll see here in a second, here's the problem with epic and exclusive experiences that make us feel epic and exclusive, is that if I start to feel epic and exclusive, I start to exclude myself from the grace of God. Because if I have a go-to thing, why would I ever need to go to God? 
if I am set and self-sufficient, then I'll come to church, but God is just a luxury at the tagline of my week. I don't really need him for very much of anything because I'm set. When I need a shot, when I need to be reminded I'm somebody, I don't need to go to him. I've got my grandkids, and I've got pictures, and I'll pull them out, and I'll show them to you. And that's going to give me a sense of, I'm all right. That's the story here. This is what starts to happen to the apostle Paul. Um, I'll never forget the, uh, man, the moment when my dad, just days before my 16th birthday, when my dad announced uh, to our family that we'd be leaving Australia and going back to Zambia, which is where we were from. Oh, man. My little teenage world came crumbling apart. My world was shaken. Because my parents, I don't know if they had forgotten, but I was famous. People knew me in Australia. This was where all my friends, who I got up to no good with, this is where they lived. This is where I felt like I was somebody. This is where I was most self-sufficient. I was set here. Did they not understand? And so I can remember starting to negotiate with my parents, like, how about you guys put me in boarding school um, and leave me here? Because at least I'm in a place that I love and a place that I know and a place where I feel set and a place where I feel self-sufficient. I even suggested, hey, okay, how about if I commit a crime, then I can be locked up. But at least I'll still be here because I'm known here. I'm set here. This is where I want to stay. I can even remember praying to a God who I didn't really care much about and saying to him, hey, listen, would you please do that thing where we do not have to go back to Zambia. That was like my like, mid-teen crisis. Uh, anyway, we ended up going back to Zambia, and I can only remember one other time in my life when I was that miserable, when I was that sad, when I was that depressed. And I'm not suggesting that, hey, my teenage crisis and my teenage problems compare to what Paul is about to go through. But I am at least saying that I love the fact that the Bible is relevant and at least one person in this book can understand what I was experiencing even back then. And I love the fact that there's at least one person in this book who can understand what you may be experiencing. Because look at what happens. The second part of verse 7 says, Therefore, in light of this epic experience and the temptation to start to feel epic, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, from feeling too set, from feeling too set apart, from feeling too self-sufficient, from feeling superior, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. This is intense. Paul is saying, oh, yeah, yeah, the same God who invited me to come and hang out with him in heaven is the same God who introduced me to the most excruciating hell on earth. 
It's what Paul refers to as a thorn in the flesh. Now, for years and years and years and years and years and years, people much smarter than I, theologians and historians have tried to figure out what exactly this thorn Paul is referring to is. And there's a bunch of speculation. Is he speaking about something physical? Did Paul have some physical setback or some physical sickness that restricted his ability to live as fully and as freely as he would have liked? Others have wondered, is it something emotional? Like, is this ex-persecutor of the church starting to be haunted by the memories of those he had hurt and those he had persecuted? Or was Paul maybe experiencing these deep dips into dark places of depression on account of a loss he had experienced? Was it something emotional? Others speculate, no, maybe it was something relational. Was Paul feeling the sting and the burn of rejection or abandonment, betrayal? Or maybe did somebody from his sordid past re-emerge in his world and he had to deal with this relationship, this situation now? Others have speculated, was this maybe something spiritual? Was this perhaps something moral? Is Paul maybe speaking about the thorn as some kind of a struggle, some kind of a temptation that is just dogging him and all other temptations don't seem as strong as this particular one but is there an area in Paul's life that just draws him in with such power and such force now again Paul's not speaking about the actual choice to sin but could he be speaking about the temptation this gravity to sin in a particular area that just won't go Away. The word used for flesh is a word that could speak about your spiritual being. It could speak about your physiological being. Uh, it could speak about your human nature, your sinful nature. So we, we don't know exactly what Paul is speaking about because he doesn't tell us. And the wisest of theologians will have to admit we don't know, which means God did not want us to know. But there are still some things we can gather about this experience that Paul is alluding to. Number one, whatever this thing was, we know for a fact it was excruciating. It was excruciating. I don't know if it was physically, emotionally, or psychologically excruciating, but it was excruciating. Listen, if you read the life of Paul, in fact, if you flip back two chapters and, and you read through Paul's resume of suffering, you will quickly figure out this is a guy who was beaten and left for dead. This is a guy who was bitten by snakes. This is a guy um, who on one occasion was whipped with a cat of nine tails 39 times as that thing clawed into his flesh and tore his back to shreds. He had gone through some of the most excruciating physical experiences that, that we could not imagine in three lifetimes combined. And in all of those painful experiences, Paul never so much as complained. And yet whatever this thing is, it has driven him to the place where he's saying to God, I cannot handle this. You've got to make it stop. Whatever it was, we know it was excruciating beyond Paul's greatest struggle. We know that whatever this thing was, it was persistent, right? I mean, this thing had not stopped dogging him. 
And just when he thinks that maybe there's a little glimpse of daylight, it would show up again. In fact, it's possible that for the better part of the last 14 years since his epic and exclusive experience, that this has been his excruciating experience. It's persistent. It won't let up. It just won't stop. Whatever this thing is, we can at least gather it was humiliating. The word he uses for torment is the word that, that's translated black and blue, to beat someone black and blue. And I love how one commentator said nobody parades themselves in the streets when they're in that condition. Whatever it was, it wasn't something Paul wanted people to know. It wasn't something Paul was proud for people to see which may be part of the reason it doesn't tell us what it is. It's humiliating. And whatever it was, it was impossible. It was that thing that no matter what Paul tried, no matter how many connections Paul had, no matter you know, what skills he implemented, no matter what he did, he could not figure out how to experience some relief. He could not figure out how to fix this thing. It was so entirely impossible. He couldn't change it, which means what we could say when speaking about a thorn in the flesh is it's some kind of setback. It's some kind of struggle. Painful, persistent, excruciating, whatever, but it's some kind of struggle that you cannot fix or reverse. And Paul is saying, I had one of these things. Thorn in the flesh. But you know, while we're here getting to know each other, I mean, I'm curious to know, what's, what's yours? And please don't elbow the person sitting next to you, because that's just me, you know. Um, but what's, what's, what's yours? I mean, if your epic and exclusive experience is the thing you want to lead with, is the thing you want to post on Instagram, is the thing you wish the bumper sticker and the t-shirt of your life loudly declared about you, what's that thing that you never want people to know is your reality? What is that thing that reminds you that maybe you are not as set as you like to think? What is that setback that reminds you that maybe you are not better? You may even feel a little bit less than the people around you. What is that thing that's been dogging you and dogging you and dogging you? And for some of you, it's been going on for years and years and years. What is that impossible thing? No matter what you've tried, no matter what connections you've brought in, you've not been able to overcome and fix it. For some of you, it may be a physical thing. Like you may literally have a, a physical setbacks, physical struggles that you've carried for years and you've seen this expert and you've seen this specialist and you've had this procedure and you've had that done. But no matter what, it continues to hamper you and you feel like you just can't move forward in fullness and freedom of life because of this thing. For some of you, it's, it's relational. There is a level of dysfunction in your family that you can very easily hide when you come to an event like this. But behind the veil, behind the scenes, there is tension and darkness. And it's been that way for years and years and years and years and years. You've just learned to fake it, but you know you can't fix it. 
For some of you, it's emotional. You get dragged into these dark places where you start to feel the weight of loss or, or you start to feel the weight of depression that you can't even necessarily explain. And no matter how many people have tried to spiritualize it, no matter how many people have tried to, to, to suggest this and the other, it's been your painful reality maybe for years. For some of you, it's a grandparenting situation where you wish you could actually spend more time with your grandkids. But that relationship is so severely fractured. The drama there is so beyond your ability to fix. For some of us, it may be something of a more spiritual, moral nature. Oh man, this we don't like to talk about. That area of sin that seems to have your number. I mean, you can deal with a bunch of other areas. But this area of temptation is stronger than the others. To harm your body as some kind of way of experiencing it physically relief that you can't experience emotionally. Temptation to, 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 to take a hit or, or, or to have another drink. Or the temptation to, to get online and just get lost in a pornographic world. The temptation to cheat. I mean, it's just, it, it seems like it's been a part of your world for years and years and years. And years. What is that for you? <coughs> Paul knows what his is. I know what mine is. What's that area for you? <coughs> uh, whatever this thing is for Paul, like we said a second ago, it is so overwhelming and it's so excruciating for Paul that it drives him to the place where he goes to God and he just begs him. The language when it says he, he asked three times is just a creative, poetic way of saying he asked God over and over and over again. Would you please make it stop? Over and over again. Would you please take this away? Over and over again. If you removed this, God, how much more effective could I be as a person? How much more freely could I fly? How much more fully could I live? He begged God over and over and over again. Have you ever been there? And this is what we really want to zone in on this morning. Because I want you to see um, how God responds to this. Um, this is pretty sobering. Look at the first part of verse 9. But he... God said to me, my grace is sufficient for 
you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. I'm going to go ahead and read that one more time. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Um, In other words, God said, no. Now, just to summarize, okay, this is Paul, who God clearly loves and likes and enjoys enough to teleport him to come and hang out with him in heaven. And he's pleading with God. There is this excruciating, there's this struggle, there's this setback, God, that's keeping me from what I feel would enable me to live fully and freely. And I'm begging you, would you please make it stop? Would you please take it away? And God says to him, no. I have no intention of changing that situation. I have no intention of removing that struggle. I mean, can we be honest? Have have you ever felt that from God? Have you ever felt that maybe you don't even know God and you don't care about God, but in a desperate enough situation like I was as a teenager, you might think to cry out to whoever he is. But have you ever felt that? That God is looking at your struggle and he's looking at your setback and he's saying, nope. I'm not going to change that. That's intense. Because the versions of God I've heard is a God who tends to always say yes. But here we are reminded of a God who says no. To Paul as he's begging him to remove that struggle. Why? What would make God say no to removing the thing that seems to be holding Paul back? From living more fully and living more freely. I mean, how much more Paul could do for God if he didn't have to worry about this crazy family situation? Or this nutty, pesky temptation. Or this physical setback, whatever it was, whatever it is for you. Why would God say no? Again, thankfully, we don't have to guess because God tells us. He tells him and we get to listen in. And in essence, what God says to Paul is, um, I want to do something so much better and so much more beautiful than take away your pain. I want to introduce you to my power. I want you to experience my grace. The thing, Paul, though, 
is there is no better way for me to show you my power than for you to experience some pain. There is no way for me to invite you into the depths of my grace without you having some struggle. So no, I'm not going to take it away. I'm going to do you one better. This is crazy to me. But such a powerful thing for us to see and for us to think about what God might want to speak to us about our unique areas of struggle. Because he says, my power is made perfect in weakness, in struggle, in pain, in the setback. That's where my power is made perfect. I could free you of your struggle, but I would so much rather fill you with my power. A kind of power, by the way, which despite what you might think, Paul, enables you to soar above whatever the pain is. It's a kind of power that enables you to live fully and freely even if the setback stays. That kind of power. It's a power that triumphs even in the midst of scars, even in the midst of sorrow. And by the way, if there's any question about that, I would invite you to flash back 48 hours to Good Friday. The darkest moments of Jesus' greatest pain. Which makes me really curious, by the way. Um... What's the thorn in your life that God just seems to have refused to take away? I mean, what is that thing that maybe for years and years and years, maybe for some of us for decades and decades, you have asked him and you have tried and you have labored and you have worked to fix But God just won't take it away. In fact, you're sitting in here today and it's still your reality. It's still your setback. It's still your struggle. What is that thought that you believe God has said, nope, it's interesting for me. It took me probably way into my 20s to even consider the fact that maybe the thing I've been asking God to take away, he said no. What's that thing for you? Because whatever it is, I I know what it is for me. I hope you know what it is for you. Because whatever it is, if you have some struggle, if you have some pain, if you have some setback that you've not been able to get through and it doesn't seem God is willing to remove, can I just tell you on this Resurrection Sunday, congratulations. You have been selected by heaven for a demonstration of power. Congratulations, you have pre-qualified to experience grace unimaginable and 
power beyond your wildest imagination. The very struggle and the very setback that you have tried to get rid of is the very thing God says, "Uh -uh, I actually want to show my power off in that weakness. In that struggle. I just came to announce to somebody, you've been sitting on a golden ticket maybe for years. And my plea with you this morning is do not waste your weakness. If weakness is a lightning rod that attracts the power of God. If struggle is what invites grace upon grace, it invites his power and his presence into these close places. Don't waste your weakness. If I'm you, I would get out of your weakness as much of his power and his grace as is imaginable. Trade it in. That struggle you've had was never intended to shame you. It was never intended to harm you. It was ultimately intended to introduce you to a God who wants to show off his power in that very place. That's the beauty of this weekend. The cross was not intended to shame Jesus. It was the greatest lightning rod for the power of God to show up. But it came through a place of weakness. What is that for you? Whatever grace and power is, I, don't, I, I can't say like, oh, I fully understand it, that I know what that experience is. I think I've experienced glimpses of it. Paul experienced loads of it. And whatever it is, it, it got Paul to the place. I mean, look at what Paul says about this in the second part of verse 9. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. Wait, what? I thought we were trying to get rid of our weakness. He says, no, 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 not not in light of what I've just discovered. So that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for the sake of Christ, I delight in weakness, in insult, in hardship, in persecution, in difficulty. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What a flipping of the script. All of a sudden, Paul starts to humble brag about his weakness. Paul actually wants to start his message by saying, oh, what should I tell you about myself? Oh, I know. I have some serious struggles and some serious weaknesses and some serious issues. And the reason he wants to do that is because he's understood now that it is in my weakness that power is made perfect. It's not in my bragging. It's not in my boasting. It's not in the epic and exclusive experiences. It is actually in the excruciating moments. And so Paul says, I I, I start boasting all the more gladly in my weaknesses. Why? So Christ's power may rest on me. And please, Paul is not saying I enjoy suffering. He's not masochistic, but he is pragmatic. And he is saying, but however, I have learned that it is worth it. If I can have more of God's power and I can have more of God's presence, then I'm going to embrace this weakness because this is the doorway through which that enters into my experience. So some suggestions. Number one, admit it. 
Number one, admit it. If the question is, how do I experience his, his power and his grace in the midst of my weakness, in the midst of my struggle, admit it. Would you? See, because we have an obsession with image. We are obsessed with image. In fact, many of us will walk out of this room unwilling to admit to God, I am weak and I struggle and I feel overwhelmed. Why? Because I have such a hard time even acknowledging I am weak. Listen, I want accomplishment. I want achievement. I want credit. I want to be able to brag about some things. I want the people around me to think I have my stuff together. And so instead of admitting it, what we will try and do is we'll try and fix it or we'll try and hide it. And some of us have been in that pattern for years and years and years and years. How's it working out? Try and fix it and try and hide it. And Paul would say, just admit it. Can you just acknowledge the fact that you have struggles that you cannot fix and things you cannot change? And the second thing I would encourage you to do is ask him. Ask him. Ask God. Because I think some of us have worked, some of us have labored, but we've never actually paused. To say, God, here's my weakness, and I admit I can't fix it. Would you please show up and make your power a real thing in my life? Would you please make your grace a real thing? Would you please make your presence a real thing? This was never a setback. This was always a setup for you to be able to come into my world and do some amazing things. Would you please make the most of my weakness? I don't know about you, but I spend the majority of my time asking God to change my weaknesses and to take them away. And I spend very little time asking him to come and make himself at home with his power in my weakness. And for some of us, this may just be the day he wants us to ask him. God, I've been asking you to get rid of it, but now I'm asking you, would you please show up in the middle of my weakness? So that I can say with Paul, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Um, some of you have heard me share this, but I can remember where I was, exactly where I was um, for the debut of the you know, 19th season of the Oprah Winfrey show. And I just want to say in my defense that I'm not, I wasn't like an Oprah Winfrey watcher, but on that particular day, I happened to be watching it. Whew. Anyway, so um, some of you remember this. Some of you are too young to remember what was going on in the 19th season of the Oprah Winfrey show. But that was the crazy episode where she comes into her live studio audience and she gives out 276 G6 sedans of some sort. She gives out free cars to every member of her studio audience. She's going crazy. She's screaming, ah, you get a car, and you get a car, and you get a, you get a car. Everybody gets a car. Everyone's like, ah, excited. I'm at home just hating, just mad. I want a car. I want to call Oprah. Why can't you give me a car? You know, I hope the trunk doesn't open. And I hope the radio doesn't work. And I hope the AC. I mean, I start wishing just hateful beams, you know, through the screen. Because I'm not digging what's going on. But you know what I found so fascinating about that particular show? Turns out that the studio audience wasn't randomly there. They were actually pre-selected. 
Most of them were some, in some kind of education. They were educators, but not just educators. They were educators um, who were struggling financially. In fact, it was discovered that many of them were driving around hoopties. They were driving around these broke-down, ridiculous ghetto cars that just weren't trustworthy. You know the kind of car that you'd be super embarrassed to pull up in. Those were the cars that these people were driving. Some of them didn't have cars, so they were jumping on the bus in order to go to school or to go wherever they want. You know it's the kind of thing where you're like, mm-mm, that's, mm, that ain't my hoopty. That's not my car. Mm-mm, you know. Well, I'm just jumping on the bus because, you, know, um, you know, just to save the environment. You know, um, this is the stuff that you typically be embarrassed about ashamed of until you realize that that's the very thing that qualifies you to be sitting in the live studio audience at Oprah Winfrey's show getting a free car. All of a sudden, like, I drive a hoopty. Like, you bought that last week. Yeah, but there's a scratch on it. It's a hoopty. It's a hoopty. You know, I take the bus. All of a sudden, you want to start admitting things because you realize what it brings about. And I'm just saying to you, if you're willing to admit it, If you're willing to ask him, if you're willing to say, God, I have areas of weakness, areas of struggle that I cannot fix, I cannot change, I do do not know what to do about them, then I want to say, hey, congratulations. You qualify and welcome to the live studio audience of the God Show. You get his power, you get his power, you get his power, everyone gets his power if you're willing to ask and willing to admit. There's no reason you should walk out of this place without asking God to meet you and start to do some great things, even in the midst of your weakness. We'll have the band come out. We'll do one more song. We've, we've got to um, as we wrap here together. But I love this day because Christmas was a reminder that Jesus lived in heaven. But he did not let that set him above us to the point where he felt too good for us. He came into our world. And Good Friday is the reminder that Jesus will meet us in our greatest weakness. That's grace. You can never say, Jesus, you don't understand the weakness I'm going through. He'll say, yes, I understand it emotionally. I understand it physically. I understand it mentally. I understand it spiritually. On the cross, I was experiencing all of the excruciating pains. I know your weakness, and I will meet you in the middle of And Silent Saturday, like we experienced yesterday, is a reminder that the deepest darkness is only a setup. It's just the perfect venue for the power of God to show up and set that place ablaze. Your deepest darkness, your greatest weakness is just the setup for that Sunday moment. Resurrection Sunday, the evidence that he is able to bring the fullest version of your life out of the greatest weakness that you may have or experience if you'd admit it and ask him. Some of you have never asked Jesus to be your friend, to be your savior, to be your forgiver you have an entirely different thorn in your flesh. It's a thorn of sin and it is killing you and eventually it will destroy you in an eternal separation from God. But the invitation is true for you as well. If you would admit I have sinned and there's nothing, I've been trying to fix it, I've been trying to hide it, I've been trying to cover it. If you would just admit God, I am a sinner and there's nothing I can do to fix it. 
And if you just ask him, would you please forgive me? Would you please restore me? Would you please make me a friend? He will say yes. Your sinful situation has been the setup for God to come and show off his grace and his forgiveness and his mercy and his freedom to you if you would simply ask. There's no reason anyone should walk out without asking. And by the way, whatever situation you're in, if you want you know, to talk or, or pray with any of us, you can make note on the card. Um, you can find somebody with a tag after the service and we'll be glad to talk to you. Don't waste your weakness. His power is made perfect right in that place.